So this morning we're going to be transitioning uh, to the Old Testament. Those of you who have been with us for a while know we go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. So we just finished up 1 Peter, so now we're going to the Old Testament. And we're going to spend uh, probably some months uh, in the book of Isaiah. The Old Testament is uh, a closed book for most people. Most people spend little time reading in the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets. The prophets are very uh, difficult to understand for many people, and so it's my hope uh, to unlock and help you understand what you're reading in the book of Isaiah. What is happening there? The prophet Isaiah is one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It's a continuous calling of the people of Israel uh, and the people of Judah back to the Lord. They are a rebellious people. They have strayed far away from the Lord in the period of time that they have been a nation. The book of Isaiah is filled with more direct prophecy about the coming of Jesus than any other book in the Old Testament. There's a reason why around the Christmas season we find ourselves reading so often from the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah spoke often of Jesus who was to come. In calling the people back to repentance, Isaiah is often speaking about the themes of generosity, justice, and especially care for the poor and the widows and the weak and aliens, which is interesting. That's a big emphasis in this church. I'm very proud of our church for the way in which we love the poor and the weak and the orphans and widows, and even this afternoon will be the launch of a new ministry specifically related to caring for uh, the widows and the elderly and the lonely in our congregation. It's very, very important, and it's a constant theme in the book of Isaiah, which we will even see here this morning. It's really important to understand Isaiah, to understand the connection between various books in the Old Testament, that the books are aligned in a certain way, but they overlap with each other, and it's really important that you see the overlap in these books in order to understand what is going on. So we have in the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, which are largely history books, history that takes us from the time of Samuel into the end of the kings of both Israel and Judah. But we also have these books called First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Chronicles overlap with First and Second Kings, but First and Second Chronicles have much more spiritual commentary as to what is going on. The, the book of First and Second Kings largely just outline the general nature of that, that kingship and what happened there. But in the book of Chronicles, we have a lot more spiritual commentary as to what God is doing or what those events mean. And so on top of those is layered the prophets. And so when we have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the various other prophets, they all fit somewhere into that. Their prophetic ministry happened during those historical periods, and they were preaching and speaking to the people that lived during those times. And so you have to be able to overlap these things on top of each other and harmonize them together to figure out what in the world is going on. And so we're going to begin to see that today with the ministry of Isaiah. But it's very, very important in the Old Testament when you're reading history, either in Kings or Chronicles, and we'll see some of the history recorded for us in the book of Isaiah, that we bring a, a separation between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Many people will read things in the Old Testament and they'll say, that is an absolutely horrific event. How could something like this ever be uh, asserted by or written down in the Bible? 
Well, because something is written down and described because it happened does not mean that it should have happened that way. We talk about that often here, the difference between what is and what ought to be. And much of what is recorded in the Old Testament is descriptive. It writes down what happened. But then you'll see the overall tone of what happens in Israel and Judah is that they are a rebellious, godless people that, according to the prophets, are often and continuously being called back to the Lord from what they are to what they ought to be. And so when we're reading in these things, we need to be careful to understand what is being described versus what ought to be happening. And so Isaiah is going to be calling for us to understand what ought to be happening, what the people are doing versus what they ought to be doing. But the third thing I would point out to you before we dive into the Old Testament that I have to say every time we read about ancient things is just because something is old doesn't mean it's mythology or that it didn't happen. These are ancient events, things that happened over two and a half thousand years ago, right around 2,800, 2,800 years ago, and then going forward as we go through this. That's a long time ago. But because something is old and very detached from where we are does not mean it's a myth. These things are recorded as history for us. These are recorded as things that actually happened. And if you go and dig in the dirt long enough, you'll find artifacts of things that happened in this period of time. You can go to museums and see what happened during this period of time. And God was acting then as he is acting now. And that's very, very important. And so these things are written for us for lessons that we might learn from them And our faith and our hope might be strengthened by reading about them. So this morning, we're going to read together Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. So please stand to honor the Lord as we begin our reading in the prophet Isaiah. Verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forgotten, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have, like Sodom and Gomorrah, become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, 
Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You spread out your hands. I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, verse 1 is where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning here to catch you up as to where we are and what's going on. This vision comes to Isaiah during the days of Uzziah. He is the prophet to Judah during four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, uh, Azza, uh, and Hezekiah. Aza, excuse me, and Hezekiah. If you don't know Israel, uh, Old Testament history, it's important. The kingdom begins as a unified kingdom. Saul is the first king of Israel, a unified Israel. And Saul is a king who is forsaken of the Lord because he breaks fellowship with God And after him comes David, a king that is most well-known, a king that serves the Lord, though he falls into sin in his later life. And his son Solomon is the last unified king of Israel. But after Solomon's kingship fails, then his son Jeroboam takes the throne and immediately runs the thing into the ground and is an ungodly king. And the kingdom divides. It divides between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Judah in the south is where the capital city, Jerusalem, remains, which is what's most known as the capital city of Israel, but it's really the capital city of Judah for most of the Old Testament history. And this is in 931 B.C. Where we pick up here with Isaiah is 164 years later and 10 kings later. So there's been 10 rotations of kings in Judah that brings us to where we are, where Uzziah is the king. And this is not a a neutral churn of kings. What this is is a spiral of decline downward. King after king after king is worse than the last. What happens is about every third or fourth king, there is a good king, but this good king cannot possibly make up for what has been lost for three before him. And so what happens is there's a downward godless spiral, and then they kind of hold their ground for a little while, make up a little bit of ground, but then there's three or four bad ones, and they go further down, and there's one good one, and they come up a little bit, but each time, each generation gets more and more godless as they go. And so as we read about these kings in First and Second Kings and in First and Second Chronicles, what we have is a review of the life of each king, a brief walkthrough of what that king's life was about and what he did. 
And what matters in the Bible is not about what this king did economically or militarily or how their political power shook out. There is something very distinct as we go through the scriptures about every single king. And it's one of two statements. Either the king walked in the ways of the Lord or the king did what was evil and misled the people. Each and every time, the tone and the tenor of that king's life is summed up by their godliness. Were they godly or were they ungodly? And each king is an imperfect, sinful person, but each king, there is a tone to their life. And whether they honored the Lord or they dishonored the Lord, whether they led the people to be closer to the Lord or they led the people away from the Lord. And there is a tone to the life of King Uzziah, and the tone of his life, as we'll see, is very similar to a number of the kings, and very similar to what we see in our lives regularly, where the king will start out great, starts out with a bunch of good intentions and a heart for the Lord, but as he reaches some level of prosperity or some level of peace, turns away from the Lord. And the latter half of that king's life is worse than the first, and whatever was done in the beginning is undone in the end and leaves the people worse than when he started. And so the leaders of the nation are radically important. The leaders of every nation are incredibly important. Before Uzziah in Judah, you have Asa and Joash, who are both uh, good rulers. And during their time, the Lord holds back his judgment. There is blessing upon the people, and there is a general godliness to the nation. In every nation, the leader of the nation is radically important. And when a leader is passionately ungodly, it leads the people into ungodliness. When a leader is godly, he helps to encourage and strengthen the people and pull them toward godliness. Leadership is important. Before God, it's amazing. The leaders that lead the people, the most, most important of all these is Josiah, who's very late in the decline of the country. But his godliness, the Lord clearly holds back judgment and relents for that period of time where that person is king which is fascinating, the idea that the godliness of one person can help influence the lives of many, many, many people and hold or, or cause the Lord to view a nation in a different way. But there's a societal norm that happens there and has happened everywhere ever since. And the societal norm is this, that godliness amongst the leadership and amongst people leads to blessing, peace, and strength in a nation. Ungodliness in the people and in leadership leads to constant struggle, chaos, weakness, decline, and ultimately the failure of the country. And there's so much that could be said here, but I want to fly over this just a little bit because we have to be reminded of these things. When a nation forsakes the Lord... And all kinds of pagan ungodliness enters into the leadership and then into all of the interworkings of the nation. It doesn't, there is a distinct thing, direction that happens that comes from this. Violence enters into the society. Greed and pride are strengthened. Theft and lies begin to increase. There's all kinds of sexual sin. There's the breakdown of the family and society. There's the breakdown of business and order because people can't trust each other anymore and it becomes this every man for himself cutthroat society. 
There's a lack of personal self-control. There's a lack of wisdom. There's a lack of diligence. There's a lack of courage. Over and over in the Old Testament, the more ungodly the people get, it's very interesting. They lack courage. There's a great sense of fear over the people, and they run and they flee instead of standing because they have no ground on which to stand. There's a debasing of judgment. There's an abuse of power. There's a spirit of lawlessness that pervades the country. There is an abuse of the poor and the weak by the powerful. Because if there is no sense of virtue for those that have both resources and strength to care for the poor, then they will be selfish and they will abuse and crush the poor for their own strength and enrichment. It happens every single time. There are empty forms of religion which provoke God rather than honoring him. We just read about that in Isaiah. These people have reached this place where they're doing religious things and they have these rites and rituals and they have, there is no reality. There's no genuineness to it. And God hates what they're doing. He wants them to stop it because what they're doing is empty and dishonors him. This is the, the spiral, the downward spiral of the nation that forsakes the Lord. God removes his blessing first, and if they keep going downhill with an unrepentant, hard heart, he then eventually actively judges them and destroys them, and that's the end of the nation. When godly leaders and godly people honor the Lord, the opposite happens. The opposite happens in a country where people seek the Lord and are seeking his ways to love and serve him. Order through personal virtue pervades the society. Order through personal virtue. There is honor. There is justice, especially for the weak, because there's a desire that all people have justice. There is industry, work, and the desire to work that you might build a better life, not only for yourself but others, is present. There is self-control in the society. There is peace. There is generosity towards those who are poor. There is service towards fellow man. Not just an every man for himself cutthroat life. There is a desire to serve other people because of a care for them. There is a generational strengthening of families instead of a generational weakening of families. There is stability in business through hard work and trust. There is courage against evil. There is the pursuit of knowledge. There is invention there is building. All these things have to do with having time to do these things, a desire to do these things. Every decadent society is, is all wrapped up in entertaining themselves, and usually that entertainment becomes more and more wicked. A godly society loves learning, loves growth. In seeking after the Lord, they're seeking after all sorts of knowledge. And in seeking after that knowledge, that knowledge builds, and it builds society. And there is the blessing of God over true godliness. People that earnestly seek after the Lord. People that, though they are sinful, they are confessing their sins. And they are seeking after the Lord in an earnest way. And the Lord looks down on this situation and he blesses that country. Furthers it and prospers it. Over and over and over we see this uh, in the nation of Israel and in other countries, including our own. In the case of Israel, though, however, they are a chosen people. 
a people that are not an arbitrary people seeking after God, but a chosen people, a people that God particularly put his graces on, particularly called out of the nations to be a nation that he would put his blessing on. He calls them children, those that he has reared and brought up, those by his purposes that he has established and strengthened. Though they are not all believing, and in fact most of them are rebelling against him, God still has a specific and special and particular purpose for the people in the nation of Israel. And so as they rebel and as they falsely worship him, as they do so much of what I just read before uh, just a moment ago, God is still merciful. He is merciful and he is promise-keeping. One of the things that we're going to see in the book of Isaiah that's going to dispel some of the myths or or, uh, notions that you might have about the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, God is always angry and full of hate, and in the New Testament, God is merciful, you're going to find that to be not true at all. That God has always been merciful. God has always been gracious. God is always extending so much more grace and mercy that the people of Israel ever deserved. And he is extending that same grace and mercy to us when we do not deserve it. He is long-suffering and he is promise-keeping. And he is working out his purposes in the world. His purposes for Israel was to save a people for himself. Just like he is doing now in the church. When we look at the church now, there's so much rebellion, there's so much problem, there's all kinds of division. Everyone in the church is not a Christian because they show up here and sit in the chair. And yet God is merciful and he is long-suffering and he is working out his purposes amongst his people now in a way similar to how he was working it out in the Old Testament. But there is a constant pattern in the Old Testament that we should never lose sight of. There's two parts to this constant pattern. The first is that to this rebellious people, Israel, the Lord God always sends a prophet. Always. There's never a period of time where the people don't have some witness from the Lord. The Lord is always telling the people who he is, what he expects of them, calling them to repentance, extending grace and forgiveness. And he's always appealing to the people through the mouth of some prophet that he sends over and over and over. We're going to see four ungodly, rebellious kings. And through all of this, Isaiah is going to be there. These kings know Isaiah. They know who he is. They know him by name. Sometimes they'll call on him. Sometimes they'll despise him. They'll do all kinds of different things to him. But they know that he speaks for the Lord. The Lord always has a voice in the people. The Lord has not forsaken us now, giving us his word that we might know who he is if we will listen to him. In the Old Testament, as now, also a part of this pattern, the second part of this pattern is that the Lord always retains a remnant, a remnant of believing people. No matter how bad the situation may get, and no matter how people may feel like, I am the last godly person on earth, the Lord retains a remnant. There are always people that believe in him and are faithful to him no matter how dark things get. I think the closest things ever got was with Noah and his family, where you've got eight people left on planet earth that still honor the Lord. But there is always a remnant. When we think about King Ahab, when things got so horrible under him, how a certain number were hidden in caves so that they would not be killed by Ahab or Jezebel. We think about Daniel and his friends and many other. You can, you can find these things. Everywhere. We're going to see it in our passage here today, actually. 
a remnant held on where the Lord is working. And what is happening in this remnant? This remnant in the midst of this dark ungodliness lives separated lives, holy lives. They are living as people that are remarkably different than those who are around them. They're not mostly like this ungodly world or a little bit different than the ungodly world. They are irreconcilably different than the ungodly world. You've got all this paganism and this wickedness going on over here, and you've got this other group of people, this remnant of godly people that live separated, holy lives, and they continue to do this. And as they live in godliness, they convict the world. And we find that the world hates them because their godliness convicts the heart of the ungodly. And they want to be rid of them so that this conviction of their own ungodliness can be pushed out of their life. But they are, in fact, the hope of the decaying society. Because if this remnant were to vanish and there is no godliness left in the society, then there is no hope left for that society. But amongst the people of Israel, the Lord always retains and strengthens a remnant unto himself. Well, this morning I want to read for us from Second Chronicles. You're going to probably have to go to your index there if you're not familiar with your Bible to find that one. It's uh, to, the, to the left or earlier in your Bible from Isaiah. But Second Chronicles is where there is an account of this King Uzziah. And I want us to read about this account of Isaiah so that we can understand who this person is that Isaiah is speaking to and dealing with. Uh, I'm going to read for us from 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 1 through 21. So I'll kind of call out the verses as we go if you haven't found it yet. 2 Chronicles 26. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah. After the king slept with his fathers, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Verse 6. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jibna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurbal and against the Munites and against the Ammonites and paid tribute to Uzziah. And his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. And moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the village gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in Shiplah and in the plain. He had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war and divisions according to the numbers and the muster made by Jeril, the secretary of Meserah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers of houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. 
and Uzziah prepared for all the army, shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Verse 16, the turning point. And when he was strong, he grew proud. And in his destruction, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong. It will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. For now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah and the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. A powerful story. Starts at age 16, 767 B.C., starts out well. He is mightily helped by the Lord. This is the same language that's used of each godly king. It's used over and over of David. He was helped of the Lord. The Lord strengthened this. He directed him here, directed him there. But Uzziah, instead of giving glory to God, turns to pride. Nick just gave us an excellent sermon a few weeks ago about pride. All throughout the Bible, this original sin is the undoing of so many men and women. As they see themselves as the, the ground and foundation of their own well-being, and they make much of themselves, and they decide not to give glory to God. Uzziah gives no glory to God. He has no fear of God either. His lack of the fear of the Lord causes him to go into the temple. He's going to upend the temple worship. This has been going on for 750 years from the time of the tabernacle till now. And never has a king been allowed into this place to do what he is doing. But he's such a great guy, such a great king, he's going to go in and take over the temple worship too so that he can do things the way he wants to do it. And 80 of the priests follow him in, trying to stop him from what he is doing, but he will not be dissuaded until God strikes him himself. Strikes him with something incurable that, according to all the laws of the land, even the king has to be excluded. And so he is put out, out of his kingship, into a house where he lives alone for the rest of his time on earth. It is into this that Isaiah is called to minister as a prophet, a nation that has lost its way, a nation that has forsaken the Lord, a nation that is led by a proud, ungodly uh, leader. And so I want to read for us again the first few verses in Isaiah with this all as a context for these things. Isaiah comes to the people with this leprosy-struck, God-forsaken king. Hear, O heavens, Give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, 
a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This is the state of the nation when Isaiah comes to speak to them. That even a donkey and an ox knows its master. It's all the things of this earth, everything, you ever realize that everything on earth follows and obeys the, the will of the Lord except for human beings? We're the rebels on this earth. We're the people that, that stand against the Lord and shake our fist at him and are going to do whatever we're going to do whenever we want to do it. This people have forgotten the Lord. They have forgotten where they came from. They have rejected the covenant promises of God down through the generations. They are rebels, as it says in verse 5. Verse 6, they are like a person that's been beat up and is covered with open wounds. Verse 7, they are weak and being destroyed by their enemies. Verse 9 speaks to this remnant that I spoke of earlier. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. But God has left a few survivors. There's always a few in the midst. In the midst of however wicked the world may become, there are always the godly left amongst it, which the Lord preserves by his own hand. In verses 11 through 14, we get to how God is sick of and hates the empty and false religious services of the people. It talks about all the offerings that they are making and all the, the festivals that they have and how they're praying even with their hands held up high, but their hearts are wicked. And though they may pray and they may do all of this, God does not hear anything of what they are doing. He will not listen, he says in verse 15. And so verse 16 to the end is the first of many calls to repentance in the book of Isaiah. He wants them to stop their evil, stop the sin of your life, stop the wickedness of what is happening in your life, and start doing good. Uh, repentance is two parts. You cut off what is bad, but then you take up what is good. It's not enough to just stop doing evil. We stop doing evil, and we start doing good. He wants them to correct oppression. He starts the very first rebuke is to start with justice. Let's start with the orphan and the widow. And let's at least treat them well. Show them justice and show them kindness because it will show that you have a heart that is near to the heart of the Lord because the Lord cares about the weak. He cares about the orphaned and he cares about the widows. And then verse 18 is this beautiful passage quoted so many times. Our sins are like scarlet. We are, we are covered in these things. It is the Lord who does the work to wash us white as snow. I talked last week about being stained by the world. The idea of having sins that stain your heart and you cannot wash that stain out no matter how much you try. It still sticks to your person. But the Lord is the one who changes the heart. He is the one who by his grace and by his mercy and by his forgiveness makes the heart new. And no matter how far down the line and how ungodly and how wicked this nation had become, the Lord can renew them and make them a new people if they will but turn away from their sins and follow after the Lord. And so the mercy of the Lord towards the soul is towards the individual. He is calling for individual people to turn their hearts back to the Lord. And as many turn, then so turns the nation. It's a call to repentance and to belief. But always in the prophets is the sober last word. 
The sober last word here is in verse 20. And what is that word? But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's not just a happy message of of self-renewal and if you'll do this, your life will be better and things will be better. It's that this is a way of life and if you don't follow in this way of life, you will die in your sins. The nation of Israel, the northern nation, did not believe this and they were worse. They were further down the line. So Isaiah begins his ministry in the mid-700s B.C. and it's 722, only a few decades later, during the ministry of Isaiah, that the entire nation of Israel is devoured by the sword as the Assyrians come in and overtake the nation. And there's just great death and deportation and the whole of Israel is carried off because they refused to repent of their sins. We could talk about this for a long time. We're going to continue this theme as we go through this book, but it is impossible for me to read these things and not think about the nation that we live in in its rapid sinful decline. When you go back to the the characteristics of a nation that is apostate, that is ungodly, that is deep in sinfulness, we check every box in the nation that we're living in right now. We have all the marks of a nation that is falling to pieces because of ungodliness. And yet I want to remind you of what I said before, that like in the Old Testament, the Lord always supplied a prophet. The Lord still has given to this nation many people that are preaching the scriptures. There are many faithful ministers still in this country preaching God's word telling people what it is that the Lord would require of them. And there is still a faithful remnant in this country, just like there always has been a faithful remnant of people that the Lord is working to bring to himself and hold near to himself. And because of these things, we should never despair. But I want to remind us, as Isaiah reminds the people there, that the situation for Judah at this time was dire, and I believe the situation for us and our time is dire. And what I mean by that is we cannot keep doing what we're doing and think that it will not lead to the end of this country. It will. You cannot keep doing what we're doing and have things just go on well. You cannot forsake and abandon the Lord and all the wickedness that comes with it and have everything just keep going on fine and dandy. We must hear a message of repentance and a message of godliness. Turn away from what you have been doing and turn to godliness and take up that godliness. Repentance is not a political issue. It is a personal desire to believe God and to live for him in obedience. And so as Isaiah preached to individuals, as Jesus preached to individuals, I'm preaching to you today. It's an ancient message. It's a message of repentance and of faith and of obedience, but it's a message of grace. It's a message of the glorious forgiveness of Jesus Christ, not a message of works, but a message of salvation. Now is the time to repent and to believe. Now is the time to obey and to remain faithful. And may our worship and the worship of our lives always be truly and genuinely from the heart that what we're doing here is not a show, it's not a sham, but it's something that the Lord looks down upon us and sees true-hearted people that love him and seek his face. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the record of these things in your word 
Lord, we thank you for the way you were at work in Judah and in Israel, even to the discipline of the nation, but then to the restoration of the nation, and then to the sending of Jesus as the Messiah and the keeping of your promises. We thank you that now you are patient and long-suffering, that now you are merciful and you are good. But I pray, God, that this call to repentance that comes throughout your word would strike our hearts this morning and that we would be a people that would want to put aside evil and take up what is good and do so by faith and a desire to love you and to serve you and that we would be such a people, a faithful people in an unfaithful time and that we would be a people calling out to the lost, seeking to help them understand who Jesus is, that they might turn away from their sins and live for Christ Jesus. We love you today, and we pray for your work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.